Let's talk today, we're going to kick off a brand new strategic Bible reading strategy called The Story. Um, This is the book, right? This is not a paraphrase of the Bible. This is the new international version of the scripture. But what it does is it puts the Bible in chronological order. If you came this morning with your Bible, and if you were to read it from front to back, from Genesis to Revelation, at some point you're going to be confused. It may not take you very long. At some point you'll be like, I don't understand what's going on. It might not take you very long. What the story does is it puts the Bible in chronological order, not topic order, and it connects the dots. It tells the complete story of God and what God is doing. And so I want to start with a, a kind of maybe a... A simple story that will lay a foundation for us. It's the story of a dad who had three children, had three boys. And the, the, the dad wants to help the kids understand things of faith and how they associate with things in their life. And so uh, have you guys ever played the game Monopoly? Most of us have, right? Or at least seen it. And uh, the dad takes the Monopoly game and he puts it on the ground and he just dumps all the pieces onto the board. And he says, play. And the four-year-old, the youngest of the sons, he finds that little car piece, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? And he just starts, he's driving that thing all over the place. I mean, he's having a ball. Now, the next son, the eight-year-old, he says, Dad, is all this money real? And he just grabs it and starts putting it in color order, right? And, and got it, he's got it, and he's like making his pile of money. Now, the 10-year-old looks at his dad and he says, well, Dad, how do you play? And the dad says, well, I want you to figure it out a little bit. And the 10-year-old looks back and he says, okay, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. And he starts giving orders and he's trying to control and he's trying to, hey, this is what we want to do and this is what we want to do. And no, but, you know, the four-year-old's, you know, the four-year-old's doing his thing. The 10-year-old's, the eight-year-old's like, I don't care what you do, just leave my money alone. Like everybody, like he can't get them to listen to anything. So he gets frustrated and he goes over to his bookshelf and he takes some books off of it and he makes a, a wall. And he's like, this is mine. You all leave it alone. This is my space. I'm going to do what I want. You do what you want. Of course, the four-year-old knocks it over pretty quickly with his car. And, you know, there's just no control. Now, the comparison, I think, in that story is some of us in this room, man, we're free spirits. We just want to roll and go and have a good time. Some of us, we want to acquire wealth. We want to acquire position and power and, and, and responsibility. Some of us like to control things, right? We like to, hey, we need order. We can't do with chaos. And, 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 we, and this is where I fall a lot of the times. I'm, I'm kind of, my therapy session begins right now, right? But I, I, I want to control all the stuff that's, and here's the deal. It's frustrating when the dad just eventually won't step in and say, okay, guys, here's how you play. Now, here's where the comparison stops because the father has done that for us. God has given us a text. He's given us actually a great story that's filled with biblical principles, with real principles that when applied to our life, it helps us figure out how to play this complicated, frustrating game called life. Now, you can keep this on your bookshelf and never read it, or you can begin to open it and to engage it. And my charge to you is the same charge that Joshua uh, said to his followers. And if you're in the story, it's on page 101. And we're, we're going to just skip ahead and we're going to come back and start in chapter 1, page 1. But this is what Joshua says to a group of people. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's the, that's the desire of me as a father, as a husband, and also as a pastor of this church, is that we are going to do our best to allow the scriptures to point our feet in the direction on how we do life and how we respond to everything else that goes on. Now, if that's not what you want to do, let me echo what Joshua says. Then decide this day who you're going to serve. Because saying, woo, I'm not going to serve anything, well, actually, that's not, that's not accurate. We follow something, maybe your feelings, it may be the way that, you're, that, you, that, that your intelligence, but you're following something. But as for me, 
in this family, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's begin in, on page one of the story. This is Genesis chapter one, verse one, if you just have the Bible there with you. And this is how our story begins. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, this is a, a great place to start for a biblical wor- worldview, like how you perceive the world in which you live, how you perceive your comings and your goings. Some of us would think that, if we were honest, that the story should begin, in the beginning, you. In the beginning, me. In the beginning, us. But that what we read in Scripture is, in the very first four words, we are introduced to the main character in all of God's Word. And one of the themes, and we're going to highlight some themes as we talk each and every week, one of the themes that you will notice as you read the story is the theme of God. In the beginning, God. Now, some of us, we want to think, well, um, um, I, I thought it was more about what I, because you've all heard it said, the world doesn't revolve around you. Anybody ever told you that before? Don't, yeah, but we don't really believe it. Right? We go, of course not, but in some like, but it really does. Right? It's about what I think, what I feel, what I want, what I desire, what I think to be true, what I not think to be true. And, and we can be guided very easily by having this uh, personal worldview that it's about you. But yet the first four words of our Bible begin with, in the beginning, God, that it's about Him. And so we're going to have these two phrases over the next several weeks. It's the phrase of the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is how we go about our life, how we're raising our kids, going to work, hitting the grocery store, having fun, how we're just doing our daily stuff. The upper story is what God is doing. God's big story. And both of these stories, the lower and the upper, they run parallel to one another. And the question is, how might we, in our lower story, begin to align our life to what God is doing up here? Will you ignore it and give it no mind and no attention? Or would you allow God to weave all of these different lower stories into the big thing that He's doing? Will you align your life with God's plan? That's the great challenge that's before us. Now, after it says, in the beginning, there's a word. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this is a source of great debate. That's a little bit of humor. Surely you know that, right? I mean, you guys know that a lot of people, maybe you in the room, don't believe right here. Like, all of a sudden, I've already lost you. Oh, you're one of those guys that believe that God created? See, evolutionists and naturalists would also believe in creation, but they would say, in the beginning, the universe created. Like, their, their point of origin would be something other than an intelligent designer. But again, i got to go back and remind you, as for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. When you say, well, man, that's really nice and all, but you, you know that's not very smart because, now, because this is what I hear sometimes. Once I have figured out all of these things, then, then I will serve the Lord. Like if God would prove to me that this stuff is actual, then I would serve the Lord. And listen, that is not logic that you apply to anywhere else in your life. And I can prove it in just a few examples. There's not a man in this room who waited to figure out his wife before you married her. Come on, men, have you figured her out yet? No. Wives, if he might think he has, but women, has he figured you out yet? No, 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 no. She's a complicated thing. She's not, even, she's not even a thing. She's a complex, beautiful being. And there's no, if you wait to figure out the person that you're dating before you marry her, you might as well break up right now, have a fight in front of everybody, and go about your separate ways. Now, very few of us uh, waited to figure out our financial situation before you bought that car, bought that house. You wanted it? You could afford it, you thought, and you just went and did it. They didn't put a lot of thought into it. And I'm, for us in the room who have children, there's not a person in here who read every book on child raising and had a great game plan before we had babies. 
It don't take me long every single day to remember that I don't know what in the world I'm doing. I'm just trying not to break somebody. Right? But yet when it comes to our faith, what do we do? Oh, well, God, you have to explain everything before I will trust you. But as for me and my household church, we will serve the Lord. It's just kind of determining. You know why? I don't understand it all. It doesn't all make sense yet in my brain. But I am trusting the words of Scripture. In the beginning, God created. Something created something. You know, you know the joke, right? The joke of the evolutionist who came to God and said, Hey, God, uh, me and my scientist buddies, we've gotten together, and we have decided that we don't longer need you. God's like, Really? Yeah, we don't need you. There's not really anything anymore that you did that we can't do ourselves. And God's like, Really? And the scientists are like, Yeah. For example, uh, we'll have a competition with you on making man. And God says, Well, let's do this. Evolution says, I'll go first. And he reaches down in the ground and picks up some dirt to make man. And God says, Hold on, buddy. Get your own dirt. Oh, come on. No, no, no. Come on. A little grace and the humor here, right? Get your own dirt. Thank you for a good one, she says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a God who creates. He is a God who does new things. The song we just sung, you make beautiful things. In the, God, uh, in the story of Genesis, God begins to create. On day one, uh, he creates the light. On day two, the sky. Day three, the land and the sea and vegetation. Day four, we find the great lights in the sky, the stars, the sun and the moon. Day five, the birds and the creatures of the sea. Day six, he creates all of the creatures on the land. And uh, he does this in a particular order that makes sense. And when creation is ready... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we are introduced into the second primary character in the story of God, and that is mankind. That is where you and I enter the story. On the second part of day 6, when creation was ready, we read this. It's on page 2 of the story, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 in your scriptures. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now this is interesting because you can, just, you can read right over this. But this is one of those things that I read at a time in my life and it just blew my mind up. Because here Moses has given us the story of how God created this singular Oh, the singular person, uh, we'll get it back on in just a second. The singular guy, God, and how he's creating, thank you, uh, God, and um, creating light, and he's creating, but look what he says here. Let us, us is not a singular term. I didn't change this word for stuff to make sense today. This is in your scripture. Now, I don't really trust the, what the story says. I'm going to go, go, go find your grandma's Bible. And what you will see in Genesis 1.26 is that God says, let us. Who in the world is he talking to? Us is plural. Let us make mankind, that's men and women, in our image. Again, a plural word, our. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought there was just one. I thought Jesus was somebody that came later on. No, from the beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all there. Let us make mankind in our image. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are not some afterthought to fix a plan that went wrong from the beginning. You read in John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh, that this man Jesus, who was with God, in the beginning was God, uh, in the beginning the Word was God, it was with God, that Jesus was there from the very beginning, from the very start. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through Him and nothing was created but by Him. In Genesis 1, we are seeing this triune God, this Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's a beautiful thing to notice the words of Scripture. And so here is an important thing, a second thing that I want you to notice from Genesis 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. And this is a huge for the heartbeat of New City Church. The Father says, let us make mankind in our image. What he is saying is every person that has ever been created has the image of God imprinted on them. 
Now, people of New City Church, those who call this place your church home, you know that we love those who are not yet here. We love those who could give a flip about coming to church. We love those who really don't care about coming to church because I know, and what we communicate to you always, is that somewhere in there, based on Scripture, if Scripture is true, and I believe it is, that the image of God is within every single person. The pressure we put on ourselves as church people is now it is our job to go and put God in people. Man, if I could just get them to... No, 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 no. That's not biblical. It's not our job to put the image of God in somebody. Our job, our responsibility is to pull that image out, to make that image known in that person. It may be suppressed. It may be weighed down because this person or this man, this woman has been far from God for a long time. But that's why we are the light of the world. That's why we are the salty people. That's why we listen and hear people's story because we have the opportunity through conversation and through relationship not to overwhelm and try to put into somebody something they don't yet have, but to pull out what is already there. Man, The person in your family, the person on your street, the person at your workplace that you think is a lost cause, they're not a lost cause. Where's your faith? How might you, how might God use you to pull out the very image of God that was in that person? I want to bring your attention now to page three. On day six, after God has made Adam and Eve, he gives them their first responsibility. Now, some of you think, oh, here's the Ten Commandments. No, 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 the Ten Commandments don't come to later, like chapter three or four in the story. This is in the garden, man. We got Adam and Eve. So chapter 1 paints this quick overview of what God did. And in chapter 2 of, the, of, of, the, of, the, of Genesis, still in chapter 1, but in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, uh, the writer pauses and then goes back to the creation of man and woman and tells how the fall happened. But right here, uh, in the bigger story, the general story is Adam and Eve are created... And God gives them their first two jobs. And it's not the Ten Commandments. Look what it says. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The first two tasks that God gave Adam and Eve were to fill the earth and subdue it. God said, Go make babies, make lots of babies, over and over and over again, right? Fill the earth. And subdue it, rule over it, maintain the earth, maintain creation, take care of it. This is your home. Now, this is a two themes that I want to bring to your attention that will go through the entire story. And it's the theme of fruitfulness, and it's the theme of will. There is a theme through Scripture where the Father expects His people, Jesus expects His church to be a fruitful people. You are expected to bear fruit. You are expect- Why? Not because you're great, it's because you are in Christ. John 15 talks about the person who hangs on to the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. A man who remains in me and I in him, he will produce, she will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can't produce fruit at last, but attached to me, you will. It's this idea that, man, there is this theme on the end to the New Testament where you will produce fruit. It started in Genesis chapter 1. There's also the, the theme of the willpower, that you are to subdue creation. You are to subdue everything that I have made. Now, up to this point, sin has not entered the story yet. But the thing, a theme that we have to subdue in our own life is our own will. We have to subdue. Paul says that I must defeat my body. I must beat my flesh every day because if you don't, your skin, your very desires will pull you in every direction. And it will pull you away from God and it will get you in habits. It will get you in situations. It will get you divorced. It will get you broke because our selfishness and our skin always pull us in the opposite direction of God. We have to find this theme and correct the, correct the dot to go back to the garden where Jesus says, not only, or God says, I don't do I want you to be fruitful and multiply, but I want you to subdue everything. 
Sin isn't everything. We have to subdue it. This theme of how can we overcome, overcome our own evil desires and our own evil will. Now, as the story continues, you don't have the big number two in the story because it just keeps flowing, right? That's the narrative. But if you're following along in your scriptures, we get into chapter two. And in chapter two of the Bible is where we begin to see uh, in the blood and the mud of how man was created, how woman was created, and how the enemy gets involved and breaks everything down. And so let's check this out for a second. It says this. It says um, on page three of the story, it says, this is interesting, that the Lord, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word formed, I want to show you something. If you have the story or if you have your scripture, it's okay to write and circle and draw in your Bible. Do you see how mine's colored and how creative? You're right, I'm like a little kid, all right? I do that because I'm taking notes and I'm, and I'm, I'm writing reminders. And it's not, not just because I'm speaking on Sunday mornings, but it's because for my own study time that I can refer back to. And if you look in mine, I've got the word formed, highlighted, encircled, because that word means this idea of being an artist. It's the same word when Jeremiah is talking about the potter and the clay, that this artist made you. It's this idea that says, then God created, he formed like a great artist, a smart, a creative artist. Listen, I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to is this. You're not junk. You're not trash. You're not even the best of paper plates. You're not that. You're not even Chinette paper plates. You're like fine China. You are God's creation. The image is put on you. And what happens, my, my, actually, uh, Mike, I shared this story this morning, and you showed up at the second service. My friend Mike Grubbs here, I meet with Mike probably once or twice a month, and a couple weeks ago we're sitting on my back porch, and I said something, I go, man, I'm just so stupid. He lit me up. I mean, with tears in his eyes, he said, listen, you must never again call yourself stupid. You're not stupid. You were created in the image of God. Now, he wasn't telling me how smart I am. He reminds me how smart I'm not. But what he's telling me is that you can't, listen, what we do all the time is we speak poorly about ourselves and about others. And that's not what God does at all. You are a beautiful creation. Now, some of the things that you choose to do may not be beautiful. But you as a person are a beautiful creation. God put thought into you. He didn't throw some paint on the wall. And he took some time. And you were created and you were formed and you were knit together in your mother's womb. Everything about who you are is on purpose. You say, well, Matt, you don't understand. I'm kind of broken and this part of me doesn't. No, you're not broken. On purpose. Everything about who you are and how God has created you and made you is on purpose. You are a beautiful work of art. Now, you can stay in your lower story and be feeling sorry for how you're not like them, whatever that means. Or you can say, God, how might I align what's going on down here with what you're trying to accomplish in the world? How can I align my lower story to your big upper story? But man, you were formed. You were created. Don't, tell, don't ever speak of yourself that you're stupid, you're dumb, or give yourself some negative characteristic. Man, that is the words of the enemy. Satan is a liar, the great accuser. But man, listen, you are the very child of God, created in his image. Man, may I pull that out of you today and remind you that, man, you were formed by the creator himself. Now, in chapter 2, let me remind you, the writer goes back and he's talking about the details of how man was created, how Eve was created in the fall. And so in chapter 2 here, we talk about the artist formed Adam. We haven't heard about Eve yet. And the reason I pull that out is because the next thing that we read is that God tells Adam about two trees in the garden. It says that God had created a garden and he had placed a man in it. And so Adam has work to do, right? 
Work is not a part of the, I mean, there's a curse that comes later that uh, deals with work, but work isn't the curse. He was already had a job. We were created. Mankind was created to work. And Adam is in the garden, and uh, Eve is not here yet, and God says, there's two trees that you can't mess with, bud. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It'll let you know what sin is. And the other one is the tree of life, that if you eat from it, you'll live forever. So just check that off in your brain. Adam knows about two trees. And he says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then after God says this, for the first time in the scripture, you see this word, it is, or these words, it is not good. Up to this point, every time God creates something, you see it is good. It is good. God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. But all of a sudden, you read that it was not good. This is page four of the story. It, was not, it is not good, God said, for the man to be what? Come on. For the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word helper is not subordinate. It's the word companion. I put this in your bulletin if you wanted to see the, the definition of the word. One who does what someone can't do for themselves. That is the translation of what the, the author intended to say there. Is that I am going to create for, for Adam someone who will do for him what he could never do on his own. I'm going to create for Adam, not someone for him to lord over, but for someone that will be his suitable helper, that could do for him what he could never do on his own. I want you to notice this, uh, church, is that on the other side of, the, um, of, your, of your insert, if you're following along, is that God notices the need first. God always notices the need first. So God here has Adam, Adam's maintaining the garden, and God notices, wow, it is not good for Adam to be alone. But the next thing that you see is not God creating Eve. That's not the next thing, that's not the next move God makes. Because see, God only typically uh, meets our need when we also are aware of our need. See, God sees needs in your life right now that you don't even know. Like some of you, during this hour, I believe this, during this hour, God is going to bring to the forefront of your mind spiritual needs that you had that you've never thought of before. And that spiritual need has already been met in the person of Jesus Christ. It's already been met in the foundation of His church. You just have never noticed the need that you have for that spiritual thing. But all of a sudden, you may leave here, and over the next several weeks, you're going to see things and hear things and experience things. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, like I have this spiritual hope. Like what I once thought was true, it really, it's built on a, on a sandy foundation. It's not really stable. And all of a sudden, you're going to have this need in your life. And God now is going to begin to bring into your life the very need, the very uh, thing that he has created to meet that need because now you see it. God always sees the need first, but God doesn't bring the need or meet the need in your life until you too see that need. It's proven here in Genesis chapter 2. God sees that Adam is not good for him to be alone, but he doesn't make Eve. He gives Adam a big job. Adam, I want you to name all the animals. And Adam, I don't know how long it takes him, but Adam goes to work, and man, as he's doing this, he completes the task, and at the end of it, uh, look what he says. He says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. At the end of this job, and Adam's interviewed and, ha- and, and messed with, uh, dealt with, trained, I don't know what he's doing. After he names all of the animals, it says that no suitable helper was found. Adam's like, man, these monkeys ain't doing it for me, and the lions are scary, Right? But all of a sudden, Adam recognizes the very need that God already saw in him. And so what does God do next? Now God meets the need. Now I know some of the women in the room think it happens like this, that God puts Adam in a deep sleep and removes Adam's brains and makes Eve. That's not, that's not how it happened. You know, that's not how it happened. Adam fell into a deep sleep and God removed a rib, the bone closest to his heart. 
and he made Eve his companion, the one who would meet his needs that he could not meet for himself. I want to speak to us real quick, if I can hit pause on this. I want to speak about marriage for just a few moments. Part of the problem of marriage is that um, we talk way too much about love and not enough about need. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed this, and honest, sometimes I'm a, I'm a part of it. But my family, my family of five, will go out to dinner, and we'll be sitting eating our chips and salsa. And around the tables around us, all the families are out, and they're all doing this. You, you do this when you go out to eat? I mean, you're out with your family, and, and, and you look around, and everybody, nobody, family's sitting together, but nobody's talking. We're, we're on our smartphones. We're checking Facebook and seeing what our crazy aunt's doing, or maybe you're posting the crazy thing that you're doing, and uh, you're taking pictures of your food, which is fine, right? What I'm getting to is this. Your companion, your spouse, the person that you're moving into marriage with, towards marriage with, is somebody that, based on uh, Scripture, is someone God has given you to meet needs in your life that you could not meet yourself. And maybe even of some of us who have been married for some time, what has, happens is we, we replace the person that God gave us that meets specific needs, and we replace it with false things, real things, but that were never intended to meet that need. And so we go to Facebook, and we go to uh, Bunko, and we go to the bar, and we go to the softball game, and we go to all of these things. We go to our children, and we go to our extended friends, and all of these, some of us even go to websites late at night that people don't know we're on, or we go to secret habits that people don't know we have, and we go to all of these things that meet these needs in our life, that scratch all these little itches that we have that complete us, that do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. Meanwhile, what happens is we just become roommates with somebody that we really, really love, we just don't need them anymore. I talked about fasting earlier. Some of us may need to go into a fast in our marriages and our dating relationships, those of you who are dating seriously towards marriage, and say, we're going to specifically on purpose cut things out so that we will need each other more. That may mean that you don't hang with this group of friends for a time because I want you to be my best friend. I'm not going to go to this social media site anymore because I don't want to have all of my uh, words out or all of my information coming from I want, it, I want it to come from you. Like, I want you to meet my need. Like, I am going to personally confess this, this hidden sin that I've got going on in my life or this hidden habit so that it is brought into the light and no longer in the darkness because I want you and you alone to meet this need in my life and not create this feeling that's only temporary and makes me feel guilty on the backside. Man, marriage, if I could say this to you, son, your, a healthy marriage is built on need, not love. Man, do you need your spouse? Adam needed Eve. There wasn't another suitable companion around. Like, what would it be like for the next two weeks for you to not to use the love word, but to use the I need you word? And tell your spouse, tell your fiance, tell your girlfriend, your boyfriend, how, I need, how you need them and why you need them. And listen, the reason, I'm just saying this, the reason that maybe some of the marriages in the room are, are boring and dull, it has nothing to do with love. So you no longer need them. But the truth is you do need them. How do you rediscover that? How do you reestablish that need? That was for free. Let's continue on. (laughs) So, of course, most of you know the story. Adam apparently tells Eve about the fruit. She knows what he knows about stay away from the two trees. But we're introduced at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, page 5 of the story, of the third character in God's big story. Main character is God, second primary character is mankind, and the third character is that evil, deceiving, manipulative uh, Satan. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. 
is that God has an adversary. And because God has an adversary, guess what? The people of God have an adversary. You say, you mean the whole world or just Christians? Every person has the image of God in them. And the enemy is at work in this world through, the, through, through every opportunity he can to jack up and to take shots and to hurt the very thing that God loves the most, mankind. And so the enemy comes to Eve, the only two people on the planet, and he's like, I've got to get them into sin. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have any temptations or no sin or no regret? That's what Adam, and they had no shame. Like there was no shame. They, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They went about their business. They went about their job, and they walked with God, and they had this perfect relationship, and the enemy hated that fact. And so through the serpent, the enemy comes, and he deceives Eve, and he gets her to eat that forbidden fruit. And Eve gives some to Adam, and, and he eats the fruit. And man, God comes to him again like he's done all the time, walking with them in the cool of the day, but he can't find them. And so you read in Genesis chapter 3 where the Lord says, where are you? Where are you? What he's saying is, why are you hiding? Like, why all of a sudden do you feel the need that you have to hide? Who told you that you needed, who told you that you were naked? How do you know that, you, that, you're, that you're, how do you know there's a problem? See, all of a sudden now sin has separated the relationship that God intended from the get-go. And what God intended is now broken, and, and the enemy seems to have won. But of course, we know that's not true. So when God says, when Jesus says to them, where are you? Why are you hiding? The woman, right? Well, he actually comes to Adam first. And what does every great man do when they're in trouble? Blame their wife, right? Or blame somebody. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Her fault turns to the woman, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, devil's fault. Now, we're a people who love to place blame, right? Her fault, his fault, somebody's fault, right? Anything about mine? Now, this is interesting. When it comes to the enemy, the, God doesn't ask the enemy what he was doing because this has been a battle for a long, long time. And look, he turns to the snake and he curses the snake and if you read this a little bit down on page 6 of the story, this is what he says. He says, I'm going to put tension, I'm going to put intimacy between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, really quickly, you could read that and just, oh, that's, really, that's really unique unique poetry. You know, I'm going to create tension and there's going to be strife between women and snakes. Oh, that's true because most women hate snakes and most people hate snakes. So I guess that's, there's much, 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 much more happening right here in this scripture. I want, to, I want to reveal this to you. I think this is so interesting. Maybe you will too. He says this, I'm going to create intimacy between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That word offspring is the word seed. Okay, I'm going to put this in your, it's in your insert here. This is interesting. God says, I'm going to put trouble between her seed and your seed. Now, the word seed that's used there is this word semen. Who would have thought you were going to get to write that word in church, right? Right? This, now, listen, now, is all of a sudden God messed up on what he created? Because he, what he's saying is, I'm going to put tension between her semen and your semen. Your, her seed and your seed, your offspring and her offspring. Is he like forgetting how, because right, we know this, right? Women have eggs, not semen. What's God saying? Well, there's actually uh, one female in the scripture who did not require the semen of a man to impregnate her. That was the Virgin Mary. 
Here in Genesis chapter 3, God is, uh, uh, it's called a proto-evangelum, if you want to know the big word. Proto-evangelum. He is given the very first proclamation of the gospel. That enemy, you think that you have uh, struck the hill of this man, but there is coming one from Mary who will crush your head. Now you're going to strike him and you're going to celebrate. You're going to think that you're doing a good thing or you're going to think that you're winning and that you're taking down God's very own son. But the truth is this. On the third day, he will resurrect from the grave and he will crush your head. He will crush death and he will crush sin. And through him, the world will be saved. Back in Genesis 3, we find this. I think it's quite remarkable. God saw the need way before we ever saw it. And he had a plan through his begotten, his only son, Jesus, from the very get-go, that one day the word would become flesh. And one day this word would die on a cross. And on one day this word would resurrect from the grave. And one day this, this, this mighty person of God, the God himself, would resurrect and conquer and defeat death. What is the hope of the church? Everybody goes to church on Sunday and numbers get big. That's not the hope of the church. The hope of the church is in a resurrected, crucified Jesus. That's the hope of the church. And God tells Eve about it way back in Genesis chapter 3. Then he says, that's what he said to the snake. Then to Eve, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Women, I think it was supposed to be fun. The childbirthing part, right? Like, but now you're like going to squeeze somebody's arm and yell at them, Right? But there was a time when it was going to be, he says, with your painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Sometimes people think, oh, that means that you're going to lust after your husband, and you're going to like, be very sick. Anybody that's been married knows that's not accurate, right? I mean, come on. That's not what he's saying. You're going to have this passion and this desire to have control, have leadership over your husband, but you're not going to have it. He will rule over you. And it's going to be, some of our, going back to this marriage talk, some of us, the frustration in your marriage is that you're not observing, you're not giving weight to the very curse that's in your marriage, you're not acknowledging it. That what you want, God is saying you will never have. It's part of the curse. Then he turns to man and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it and produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. See, work was always a part of the plan, but now you won't find fulfillment in your work. Work's going to be hard. Anybody ever have a, had a job that's been frustrating? Yeah, right. Every person alive, doesn't matter if you're a pastor, doesn't matter what you do. There's frustrating things in your work, and it can't bring the fulfillment that God intended because sin is in the place. We listen to the enemy more than we listen to God. We read at the bottom of page 6 in chapter 3, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so God kicks out Adam and Eve from the garden. And at first glance, you may think, man, that's kind of mean, that's kind of hateful. Actually, it's not. Because the last thing I want to do as a person who understands what sin is and the effects of sin on my life in the sin that I choose to participate in, the last thing that I want to do is live forever in this state. And God showed grace to Adam and Eve. And said, listen, you, now you know right from wrong, I'm putting a number on your years. And you will not eat from this tree that will lead to everlasting life or long life. Uh, you, you will die. From the dust you came to the dust you will return. Because of sin, that's why we die. Like the person said, you know, ain't none of us getting out of this alive. Everyone was born, everyone will pass. Now on page 8, there's some disturbing words. There's some sad words. Adam and Eve are uh, kicked out of the garden. And life begins to happen. They do the things that God said to do. They go, they're fruitful, and they multiply. They have two sons, uh, at first Cain and Abel. And sin, because of what has happened in the garden, makes it its way outside of the garden. And Cain kills Abel. 
How would you feel as the mom or the dad when your one child takes the life of another child knowing that it's your fault? The stress and the pain that Eve and Adam must have carried because their son, his actions, his acts of jealousy and frustration were a direct result of because they listened to that deceitful servant. And the story continues, and they begin to populate the earth, and more people are born, and more babies are born, and more people marry, and more people... I mean, in the, in the earth, and this is over a long period of time. But sin is also there now. It's not just the image of God. It's that deceiving serpent and his plan of sin. And man, people are anything but loving God. People are anything about but cherishing God. And we see this sad text here where it says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Notice this next piece. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Church, this is our opportunity in the world in which we live. Can you, could you be a Noah type? Could you be a person that when God looks down upon Kansas City in all of its brokenness, could you be a person that when God looks down and sees babies born that nobody wants, families falling apart because nobody cares, crime on the rise, heartbreak on the rise, when he looks at your street, when he looks at your family, when he looks in your own specific little neighborhoods, when he looks down and he sees all the brokenness that we see all around us. And listen, just watch the news tonight. And you're going to hear stories, and you're going to see heartbreak about how does this happen? How could this happen? How could somebody abandon this? How could somebody do something so hateful? And could it be that when God looks down into this broken world, that he would see a Noah type? That he would see a person, not a perfect person, because Noah was far from perfect, but he was a person who did his best to align his everyday lower story with the bigger story of God, with God's upper calling. Could God look down at the people of this church practically or possibly and say, you know what, listen, all the brokenness going on in Shawnee and over in the park in Lenexa and all our surrounding cities, that there is a group of people who are striving. Man, they're far from perfect, but they're striving to align their lower story to their upper story. They're trying to give weight to my son. They're trying to give weight to what Jesus has done and what Jesus has asked them to do, that they're trying to make disciples. They're trying to live and, and, and to, to trust in and to live like Jesus. Like they're trying. Could we be a Noah type? So that when God looks down, he doesn't go, oh man, there's nothing I can do that he might say, you know what, here are some people that I could use to do something pretty significant. I'm, t- I'm just being honest with you. God uses every Noah type. God may choose you to bring reconciliation and forgiveness into your very own family. God may choose you to do something on a small micro scale or to do something in a big way. I don't know, it's his choice, it's his choosing. But the truth is this, it starts with being a person like Noah who acknowledges God and chooses to follow after him to the best of your ability. In the coming weeks, we're going to be continuing this kind of talk. We're going to continue to read the scriptures together. But on starting tomorrow night, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, I mean, we're going to be continuing the conversation in smaller environments where you get to give some feedback and we get to have discussion. They're called a story group. And if you haven't joined one of those yet, man, we invite you to do that right away. You can do that online at your home. You can sign up here tonight or today. But we, we want to get you plugged in. Because the story continues and it's about discussion. Like, I, I'm guessing that as you read this, there were things that you're like, man, I don't really get. I mean, we got to talk about it. We want to walk deeper with you. So attend church on Sunday. Myself or another pastor is going to be teaching you from the scripture. Get in a story group and then man, read on your own. And follow us in that. Can I pray for us?
Father, I thank you for the fact that, man, we are created in your image. And God, I I ask that we would not lean into our brokenness or even into the the things that we wish were better, but we would lean into who who we are in you. That we would look to you for our identity and not our own um, faults and our own struggles and our own pain, God, but we would look to you. Father, I pray for those in this room who are going through difficult times in their marriage. God, I pray that they would see the need in their spouse. They may not even like them right now, but Father, I pray that you would do only what you could do that you would reconcile that relationship because they are both focused on you first and then on needing each other. Lord, would you give us wisdom as we read your word? Would you speak to us? God, thank you for your son, how he has redeemed us. May we recognize that. And God, thank you for meeting the spiritual need in our life, that though we were far from you, you made a way through Christ and Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.